we do need you so desperately. And that has always been the case from the moment we were born. But we are more aware of how much that's the case these days. And we are reminded of that need in every conversation that we have. So Lord, by your spirit and by your word, equip us this morning. Make yourself available to us in whole new and deeper and fresh ways. We pray, Jesus, in your name, because you are the king. Amen. Well, good morning, Covenant family. It is so good to be able to be gathered together in the presence of God, even scattered across the city and across the country. It is so good to be together in the presence of God, enjoying him. I love you all, and I miss you. It's also a joy for us to be able to welcome all of our online friends. We're so glad that you chose to bring us into your home this morning and to join with us as we approach God in our worship. And kiddos, I miss seeing your faces. I love you and miss you all. Hey kids, did you know that we have an underground river that runs right through the middle of our city? Those of you who aren't familiar with our area, you won't know that just down the hill from our church, dividing Lafayette and West Lafayette, is the Wabash River, which is the main waterway in the state of Indiana. But you may all, you may all not know that 150 feet beneath that river is another river, an underground river that's called the Taze River. It starts all the way over in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, and works its way up through West Virginia and across Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and all the way to the Mississippi River Valley. There's a picture that shows the part of this river that runs through the state of Indiana. And you'll see us over on the left-hand side of that picture where it gets really wide. So I remember the first time that I heard that we had an underground river flowing through our area and I imagined this incredibly cool kind of cavern and caves with high ceilings and underground waterfalls. Kids, actually it would be really cool if you could draw a picture imagining what it would be like to be exploring an underground river. Unfortunately, the image that I had of the river isn't exactly uh, how it is. The Taze River is really a wide river valley that was completely filled in with sand and gravel and rocks by a giant bulldozer about 11,000 years ago, and that bulldozer was called a glacier, a huge ice sheet that just shoved the whole thing filled with rocks. Today, water still runs through much of the Taze River, but the word runs isn't exactly accurate it actually hardly trickles. It only moves about five feet a day. But there's a, a ton of it. This section, this area of the, the Taze River that's beneath us is over eight miles wide. And the water in it is great. Wouldn't it be cool, I thought, if I could get some of that water from the Taze River? And even if I could drink it, well, uh, Brian Forkner, who is the superintendent of the West Lafayette Office of Indiana American 
Water Company could not have been more gracious when I called him with my rather strange request. And in response to my request, here it is, water from the Taze River. And I have a little bit more here. It is pure and it is refreshing and you can drink straight from it. Now, kids, I wanna tell you a secret. If you wanna drink some Taze River water, all you have to do is go turn on your faucet. Mr. Forkner told me that all of the water that's drunk in this whole area comes straight from the Taze River. It comes up through our wells, it goes to the processing plant, and then it comes out in every one of our houses, even right here at the church. Now, this is Wabash River water. Can you see the difference in color between these two? I mean, that is gross. There is a, um, an Indiana State report about what they call uh, water quality impairments in the Wabash River. And the report, I kid you not, I was looking at it, is 257 pages long. There is all kinds of unpleasant stuff in this. You don't even want to know what's in here. You just don't want to ever drink it. Well, today we're talking about how to have a conversation with someone about something that's difficult to talk about, whatever that difficult topic might be. And whether or not that person is a, a fellow member of the church or somebody that you're interacting out in, with out in your community. And I don't know if you've experienced this, experienced this, but it seems like for me, it kind of feels this way. Like when we first started into this kind of uh, COVID season, that people went out of their way to be gracious and flexible and accommodating in their interactions with each other. But now after four months of the Corona coaster and all of the ups and downs that have come with that, and with the whole business of social distancing and mask wearing that we have to do, plus the declining economy, plus the pre-election mudslinging, plus all of the fallout from the murder of George Floyd and, and, and all of the challenge of wading into those conversations about racial inequity, it feels like in the middle of all of those things that all of us are just getting a little bit more testy, that, that some of the gritsiness and grumpiness is starting to come to the surface. And, it's, and it seems like those conversations are going less and less smoothly. Is that your experience? So how do we have conversations about things that really matter, about things that we have really strong feelings about and strong beliefs connected to? How do we have those conversations in a gracious and loving way? So here's what I want to suggest. Most of us, when we have a conversation about something that we may disagree on, say, who should be in the Oval Office come January, or uh, what measures of social distancing and mask wearing should be imposed upon us by health authorities or church leaders, or 
What is the right way to view all of the protests that happened in the wake of George Floyd's death? And what are the right first steps that we should take in the area of race relations? When we have a conversation about something that we disagree about or may disagree about, most of us have a Wabash River conversation. It's a conversation that's, that's up here. It's on the level of our disagreement. It's a ground level conversation. As we try to work our way through our disagreements. But I believe that, and, and when we do that, it is, it is uh, clouded by our emotion and colored by our narrow perspective. But the passage that we are looking at today calls us to have a conversation on two levels at the same time. On the Wabash level, that is really gross. On the Wabash River level, but then also down beneath it at the Taze River level. To, to be working through our disagreements, but at the very same time, to be relating to one another with intentions that are pure and with a conversation that is life-giving and in such a way that regardless of the outcome, we can come away from it refreshed. So the passage that we're looking at this morning is James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from above, it says literally, the wisdom that comes from heaven, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Okay, just a little bit of context about where we are in this conversation. First, our series. This is the third and last message in a series called Kingdom Come. And the first message, you may remember, we looked at John chapters 14 and 16. And we talked about how the kingdom comes down from above into this world. Jesus steps into this world from above and he inaugurates this kingdom from above and now he rules above on the throne and one day he will return from above to consummate the kingdom. And in the meanwhile, the church has been placed in this world to put the kingdom of God on display, to point up to the presence of the kingdom and its king and to allow the the kingdom love and kingdom justice to pour down through us and into the broken corners of this world. Then last Sunday, looking at Colossians chapter 3, we talked about how the kingdom comes down into an individual life and into our relationships. When we take the self out of the center of our lives and we put Jesus at the center of our lives, when we set our hearts and minds on things above, on Jesus who is on high, then at that moment, he gives us a new life which is being shaped into his own image. And then in our dealings with one another, we can enter into those relationships clothed in Christ-likeness with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, showing love, and relating in uh, peace-loving ways. All qualities or actions that are used to describe Jesus himself in the New Testament. So today, using James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, we're going to be talking about how the king from above and the kingdom from above comes down as wisdom from above into a particular moment, into a particular interaction or conversation that we have with someone else.
So, now just briefly some context about James chapter 3, verse 17 in particular. This passage comes right in the middle of a longer section in the book of James that starts in chapter 3, verse 1. This whole middle section of the book of James is about the power of our words, their their, uh, power for good, but also their destructive power. And in the middle portion of that middle section of the book of James, it talks about wisdom that gives life to our words. So let me just read this middle portion of this middle section, beginning in verse 13. And notice what it says about these two different sources of wisdom that shape how our interactions going. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven at all, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from above, from heaven, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on yourself, on your own pleasures. Back then to our passage that we're focusing on this morning, James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The wisdom that comes from above is, first of all, pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the most obvious thing about a passage of Scripture actually turns out to be the most startling and important thing about it? Well, I think that's true about this passage in two ways. First of all, you may have heard me say that often the most important idea in an ancient document is found not at the end of it, which is where we would look for the most important idea, but right in the middle of it. So this is what I'm certainly, uh, what I'm certain is completely coincidentally the middle verse of the middle portion of the middle section of the book of James, this passage. In other words, this is either the most important verse in the whole book or one of the very most important verses. So I wonder why that is. Why would a passage of scripture about how we relate to one another, how we have conversations with one another, that doesn't tell us anything about what the content of that conversation should be, but only tells us how we should actually relate to one another in the middle of that conversation, I wonder why that would be the most important verse in this whole book. Okay, second, notice what this passage says about where all of these merciful and and 
peaceable qualities come into the conversation. If I were to ask you where you would look in a conversation for a quality like like consideration or merciful compassion, where might you expect to encounter that? It seems to me that most of us would think if I'm going along on the conversation and I find that you're actually being pretty civil towards me and pretty considerate of me, then I can be civil towards you and considerate towards you. So we find ourselves kind of somewhere along in the middle of the conversation, sort of stumbling upon this mutual consideration. And where would we look for peace in a conversation? Again, I think, wouldn't you say that most of us would expect to experience peace at the end of the conversation? You talk through your differences, and if you are able to arrive at a, some sort of place of agreement, then as a result of that, you experience some measure of peace. But that's not what this passage says at all. When we have a kingdom conversation, we don't just hopefully stumble upon consideration and kindness partway in. We don't just arrive at peace at the end of the conversation if all goes well and we don't wring each other's necks. We begin there. This isn't a passage describing the outcome of a kingdom conversation. This is a passage describing where we begin a kingdom conversation and what we bring into it. So wading into the conversation and hoping that our differences will clear up so that we can be nice to each other and the conversation will end in peace, that's a, that's a Wabash River sort of conversation. But starting the conversation on the foundation of peace and mercy and consideration and impartiality, that's a Taze River conversation. And that is what we are called to as kingdom people. So let's walk through this passage and explore what these words mean one by one and see what we can learn from this. So James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. The word pure, I think fairly obviously, means it's not mixed with something or, or colored by something that dilutes it. It's just the thing itself. That but, at the start of verse 17, points to what some of those things are that we, that we don't want to have mixed into our conversation with someone else, that we don't want to have cloud or color the way that we interact. It's the, I want it, I need it, I have to have it, self-seeking, that we see in 3.14 and in 3.16 and again in 4.2, in these, in these verses that surround the passage that we're looking at. So by contrast, the person who approaches a conversation with purity comes into the conversation free of a self-serving agenda and not wedded to things being seen the way they see them or, or coming out the way that they want things to go. Think how differently our conversations would go if we didn't feel like something personal, some I-have-to-have-it thing was at stake in the conversation. But the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving. This means relating in a peaceable or a non-combative way. You approach the interaction as partners in a conversation rather than as 
opponents in a battle or a contest. In his book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, Peter Boghossian says, shift your goal from winning to understanding. Abandon adversarial thinking, conflict, strife, arguing, debating, ridicule, and the idea of winning, and adopt collaborative thinking, cooperation, partnership, listening, and learning. Shift from this person is my opponent who needs to understand what I'm saying to this person is my partner in this conversation and I can learn from him or her. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving and considerate. This is a word that conveys the idea of not ramping up or coming on strong when you feel offended especially if you are a pers person who is in a position of authority or who has some expertise in what you're talking about. Instead, it is responding gently and free of defensiveness. It can be really hard, especially when you consider yourself to be pretty knowledgeable about something, to respond graciously when someone pushes back. I was really blessed to be able to have a conversation um, a few years ago with someone who is a Christian who also identifies himself as being gay. And he believes that there is no contradiction between those two things. When he asked me my view, I told him that I thought that the Bible was clear that acting on same-sex attraction wasn't consistent with God's design and nor was it compatible with the Christian faith. He said pretty curtly that it was obvious that I had not allowed my heart to enter very deeply into this issue. And I could have said, well, look now, I've spent years studying this. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are same-sex attracted, who have been trying to process how they integrate that with their Christian faith. And I, I did actually have a chance eventually, because it's important for it, from me that he would know some of the work that I've done in this area. But by God's grace and by the work of his spirit, I was able to stop and respond and say, you know, I'm sure you're right. I think there's a lot of room for me to grow in empathy and in entering into other people's struggles. And I don't think that's a particular strength of mine. The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, Submissive. Probably a better translation of this word is teachable. It means having a humble enough view of your knowledge and its limits that you realize that you could be wrong. And even if you are right, that there is always so much more for you to learn. In Keller and Inazu's book, Uncommon Ground, Shirley Hoekstra says humility is rooted in the knowledge that some aspect of your starting point, a fact, a perception, a point of understanding could be wrong. I was talking across the street uh, with my neighbor this week and we were having an amazing conversation that went more and more into an incredible spiritual discussion about some really weighty things. And we got to the point where we were actually talking about the mysterious way that God works when we are going through struggle and we are going through pain. And this is what she, she said. She said, you know, there's another thing I just don't understand. 
I have two huge hangers full of things I don't know and things I don't understand. I love that humility. We could use us some of that. This is a place, I think, where we evangelicals can get ourselves in trouble. At the heart of our theology of Scripture, and rightly so, is a bedrock conviction that the Bible is completely trustworthy and it is without any mistakes because it was inspired by God's Spirit. But we can leap from that to thinking that because we have access to infallible truth, that everything that we believe is infallible, that we are infallible. But just because I have a perfect source of truth doesn't mean I understand it all perfectly or that I understand perfectly how it applies in our incredibly complex societal challenges today. Being teachable doesn't mean that I'll step out from under the authority of Scripture, but it does mean being willing to acknowledge that I may not know everything about Scripture or how it applies to today. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Spock says to Bones, perhaps you're right. If the brain on a stick, if, if Mr. Logical Brilliance himself can say to someone else, perhaps you're right, then maybe we could practice saying that too. The wisdom that comes from above is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. This is the compassion that James Foster sought to foster in us as he encouraged us to try to understand the experience of blacks in America. Being full of mercy be means being genuinely concerned for the pain and the struggles of the other person. Seeing that other person not as the opposition but as a real person with real needs and with real challenges and for whom this issue is something that really matters. When I am full of mercy, I seek to understand before I seek agreement. And I continue to regard that person with compassion even if we never get to a place of agreement. Full of mercy and good fruit. Jesus offers a really provocative definition of good fruit in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. It is doing deeds consistent with a changed heart. So if I've been changed as a result of my encounter with Christ, it's referring to the stuff that should just spill over in my life as a result of that. And good fruit is about motions, not notions. It's mercy in action, showing a genuine desire for that other person's good in tangible ways. I think in a hard conversation, that's going to mean us communicating with unwavering warmth and continuing with our eye contact and our smiles and not raising our voice and picking up the tab and expressing gratitude for the discussion when we're done. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, and impartial. Impartial means not drawing lines between us, my camp versus your camp, with me or against me. There is so much polarizing language in the air right now, so much that reinforces us versus them tendencies in us 
to divide up along our lines of difference and then to band together with those who are just like us. I've been thinking in the last few weeks about how our language just doesn't help us here. We have all sorts of wedge words. We have all sorts of opposite camp words, words that divide us apart and assign us to our respective camps, whites and blacks, red state, blue state, Christians and Muslims, mask wearers and non-mask wearers. But in English, and on and on goes that list, but in English we have very few words that emphasize our fundamental unity and commonality. Someone in our family we might call our own flesh and blood. Someone in our church we might call our brother or our sister, but still there's an implied division from those who are not in our family or not in our church. We just don't have a single word from the heart to capture the idea of a fellow human being. We used to. We used to refer to people as souls, implying that our These are our fellow created human beings who, like us, bear the image of God. But the best we can do in English is the the clunky and formal fellow human being. Reflecting on this, I asked my friend Rafael, who's from Mexico, if they have a word in Spanish, a word of the heart in Spanish, that gets at this idea. And he said, yes, it's the word semejante. It's an adjective that means alike, but when you use it as a noun, it refers to your fellow human beings. It's a way of saying, you know, we are just the same, you and I. That's what it means to be impartial. It's the spirit that says to the other person, in spite of all the ways that we may be different or have a different perspective in this conversation, as ones created in God's image, we are just the same, you and I. We are semejantes. Shirley Hoekstra says, bridge building is not possible if you do not have a genuine interest in knowing and understanding the person on the other side of the chasm that you seek to traverse. And this interest must culminate in respect. Respect stems from the belief that people bear the image of God. It allows for a high view of every person. Respect isn't a synonym for agreement, but it does impact the way a person disagrees. One cannot respect another and harbor a desire to overpower that person through insults, dismissals, or derogatory actions. The wisdom that comes from above is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Sincerity is the difference between a meaningful, honest conversation between two fellow human beings, and a game of chess trying to outdo one another. According to the wisdom of the world, the ends justify the means. The goal is to score the points, to win the argument, and I'll do whatever it takes. Wisdom that comes from above rejects maneuvering and manipulating. Instead, it is straightforward, vulnerable, transparent, and unguarded. When we are able to keep the conversation there, by God's grace and by his spirit, at the Taze River level, not as a hopeful outcome, but as the very atmosphere in which the entire conversation unfolds, then James says, this is the result. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Or, as Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called children of God. So let me come back to the question that I asked earlier. Why would a passage like this be so important that James would put it at the center of his book? It doesn't even tell me what to say. It only tells me how to say it. Why is that so important for us as kingdom people? Because how we relate isn't just part of how we communicate the truth. It is part of the truth we communicate. How we relate doesn't just communicate part of, wait, how did I say that? <laughs> it isn't just part of the truth we communicate. It is part, I'm going to start over, because I want to say this right. It isn't just part of how we communicate the truth. It is part of the truth that we communicate. And because when we relate with one another with love and respect, irrespective of our ability to agree, then we create a door into our conversation through which Jesus the King himself is able to step. And in the end, what matters most in our conversation is not people's encounter with his truth, but with him. So next time you have a challenging conversation, so what's your view of the person in the Oval Office right now and who do you think should sit in said office come January? Or what safety measures such as masks or social distancing do you think should be imposed on us as we wait for the vaccine? Or what is the best way to view the protest that took place after George Floyd's death? And what is the best place to address the concerns that are being raised? What would a Wabash River version of that conversation look like? And what might a Taze River version of that conversation look like? So what is God's invitation? What is his challenge to us as his people this morning? What is God saying to you? Would you pray with me? You are the king. We are your kingdom subjects. Make us, Lord, more and more like you. Make us more and more a version of you as we walk in this world and serve your ends and await your return. Inhabit our conversations to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.